We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 44 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 21st, 2021. Another installment of the podcast on which we must bid farewell. On Tuesday's show, we talked about Alex Smith retiring and Bryce Love being waived. On this Wednesday show, we will be discussing Jordan Reed retiring. Who's going to be next? Josh Doxson? Is Josh Doxson about to retire? I'll tell you what, when Josh Doxson announces his retirement, I'll do a three-hour special. Josh Doxson, by the way, was among those who opted out of the 2020 season due to COVID-19. So who knows the extent to which his career is going to continue here. Uh, but yes, Jordan Reed is retiring. There's a lot to say about his career with the Washington football team. A lot of good things. I know so much of the Jordan Reed conversation over the last 24 hours or so has been about what could have been. I want to focus on what was and focus on that I shall. Uh, also coming up, lots of Washington football team draft talk. Did you see the mock draft that came out on Tuesday that had Washington taking gulp a running back with the number 19 overall pick? Yes, sheer lunacy. I want to have a conversation with you about drafting running backs, including something about Washington that I bet you didn't know when it comes to drafting running backs. It turns out that our team is the most prolific team in the NFL when it comes to drafting running backs in recent NFL history. Now, not drafting good running backs, just drafting running backs, period. I'll explain. Special guest on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, and this is a good one. Ian Wharton, NFL writer and NFL draft analyst, 
for complex sports. One of the best guys out there when it comes to not just talking NFL draft, but also quarterbacks. Ian studies college quarterbacks and quarterback draft classes like few others. So we're going to talk non-quarterbacks, yes, but we're also going to talk a lot about the quarterbacks in the 2021 NFL Draft. Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond, Davis Mills, who and what would make sense for Washington. And we'll talk draft theory. Why isn't the hit rate on first-round quarterbacks better? Is it even worth it for Washington to take a non-first-round quarterback given how rarely non-first-round quarterbacks become franchise quarterbacks, and which college stats best correlate with quarterbacks being good in the NFL? Are there data points in particular that we should be focusing on with draft quarterbacks in trying to figure out which ones will end up being good NFL quarterbacks? Also on the pod, my thoughts on Tuesday night wins for the Nationals and Orioles, but with the Nats, more bad injury news. Juan Soto placed on the 10-day injured list with a left shoulder strain. Who? What? How? We don't know. This is the Nationals. When it comes to injuries, we never know. But now the Nats have both Soto and Steven Strasburg on the 10-day IL. Though, like I said, the Nats did win on Tuesday night. One in come-from-behind fashion and one thanks to a great start by Patrick Corbin off two clunkers to begin his season. And there is a lot of Maryland basketball news that we need to get into. I'll do that later in the pod. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So obviously, we had something very big happen in our country on Tuesday. A jury delivering three guilty verdicts on former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd last May outside of a convenience store. Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, guilty of third-degree murder, and guilty of second-degree manslaughter. Uh, The jury reached the verdict after a short deliberation, had no questions for the judge. You don't have to be a legal expert. You don't have to be Beth Wilkinson to know that those were two signs that the jury was going to be finding Chauvin guilty on most, if not all, of the charges. I am not going to do what I know many other people in sports talk land are doing or will be doing, and that is spending a bunch of time lecturing you, preaching to you, pontificating to you about the Chauvin trial and what it means and where we are as a country and where we must go as a country. The many, many, many issues that the murder of George Floyd raised are complicated and nuanced and multi-layered. And if you want to hear people yelling and screaming about these things, you know where to go. And that's not to say that these issues don't matter, because of course they matter. They matter a ton. But these issues aren't necessarily simple. There's no doubt the video of George Floyd dying is horrendous. Nobody should ever have to experience what he experienced. And the fact that George Floyd was, you know, a flawed person doesn't change any of that. It really doesn't matter, okay? Nobody should ever have to go through what George Floyd had to go through. But unfortunately, you have people who take what George Floyd went through and they manipulate it to fit their own political agenda. And that, to me, has been really bad. And I'm really tired of it. And I'm sure many of you are tired of it. So I'm not going to do it here on this podcast, okay? This podcast is meant to take you away from the real world, not shove your face in the real world. So no, I am not going to inundate you with a bunch of stuff that you're likely trying to get away from right now. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But that said, there will forever be a tie-in with the murder of George Floyd to the Washington football team. And this tie-in, obviously, 
is nowhere near the most important, prominent, or significant tie-in with what happened to George Floyd. Hear me loudly and clearly on that. But understand, it was on June 2nd, 2020, that we had what was called Blackout Tuesday. And what that was, and many of you listening know this, but it was essentially a campaign for social justice off the death of George Floyd. And the campaign included people and outlets tweeting out all black squares, okay? And so the idea was blackout on this Tuesday, bunch of people and entities putting out there all black squares, all right? So you're promoting social justice, okay? Among the entities that did this was the National Football League team, then known as the Redskins. Well, guess who quote tweeted the Skins tweet on Blackout Tuesday, last June 2nd. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democratic Congresswoman from New York. She wrote, and I quote, want to really stand for racial justice? Change your name, end quote. Now, do I think that AOC had familiarized herself with and educated herself on the Redskins name issue? No, I don't. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But I tend to think that was probably a response to something she saw or something she was told about, as opposed to she had studied the issue for years, talked to people for years, conversed with Native Americans for years, and felt really strongly about the issue. That'd be my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. But that tweet, as of Tuesday night, had been retweeted more than 104,000 times and had been liked more than 678,000 times. And that quote tweet by AOC last June 2nd, off Blackout Tuesday, off the death of George Floyd, is what as much as anything incited the name change for what we now call the Washington football team, okay? Now, there were many sort of launching points for the name change last year. But the AOC quote tweet, as much as anything, really, truly got the ball rolling. And then after that, it really picked up steam. And actually, I kind of sort of have to raise my hand as having done something that helped to pick up the steam. So Doc Walker and I had on our show on June 12th of last year, the D.C. mayor, Emperor Muriel Bowser. And at the time, the name thing was starting to pick up steam. So I said, all right. Let's go ahead and try to make a little news here with this interview and ask the mayor if the name of the football team was an obstacle to the football team's next stadium being in D.C. And she said that the name was an obstacle, both locally and for the federal government, which, as many of you know, leases the RFK Stadium land to D.C. And the mayor told us that it was, quote, past time, end quote, for the Redskins to, quote, deal, end quote, with their name. So if you're mad about the name change, I guess in a, in a weird roundabout way, you kind of can blame me because I'm the one who asked the questions to the mayor to try to see if we could get some news out of the interview. And sure enough, we did. That gained national attention, even though not every outlet that picked this up wanted to give us credit for what we did with that interview. But anyway, AOC tweet on June 2nd, Mayor Bowser comments to us on the radio on June 12th, And then came the biggest blow of them all, the Fred Smith heel turn on Dan Snyder. FedEx on Thursday evening, July 2nd, putting out a statement saying, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name. 
end quote. But I ask you this question, and I'm serious when I ask this, and I'm not trying to trivialize what happened to George Floyd. I'm just asking this again because we talk sports on this podcast. If Derek Chauvin doesn't murder George Floyd, are we still calling the football team the Redskins? I mean, think about that. Because personally, I think the answer is 100% yes. If George Floyd is still with us and doesn't get murdered, I think we're still calling the team the Washington Redskins. I don't think the name changes, okay? The name change issue had largely been dormant. And then George Floyd died and everything changed. And of course, not just with the name, but with so many things in this country. But think about this. George Floyd died on May 25th, 2020. Fred Smith and FedEx put out that statement on July 2nd. 2020. In a little more than a month, we went from zero to a hundred on the name change. You know, and I know the name change thing had been out there for years, but like I said, it had largely become a non-issue. And then George Floyd happened. And we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everything changed. And so of all of the ramifications of George Floyd, and there are so many, and there are so many so much more important than the name of a football team, But from our standpoint, talking Washington, D.C. area sports, the George Floyd murder will forever be remembered in part, certainly not entirely, but in part as the true impetus for the team we now call the Washington football team changing from its name of Washington Redskins. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. So it turns out that this is retirement week for former Washington football team players. Monday, the news that former Washington quarterback Alex Smith is retiring. Tuesday, news emerging that former Washington tight end Jordan Reed 
is retiring. Reed on Tuesday speaking to Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN and saying that his, Reed's, uh, retirement is due to lingering issues from multiple concussions suffered during his career. We've all known that Jordan has had a concussion problem, and it turns out that this does, in fact, end up ending his career. And how about this from Jordan to Kime? Uh, Reed visited Orlando's Plasticity Center for a brain scan, the results for which led to the recommendation that he retire. So this wasn't just a thing where, like, you know, Reed has suffered a bunch of concussions. He got to thinking about it. He's like, you know what? I better get out while the getting's still good. No, he got his brain looked at and the recommendations off the brain scan were, hey, pal, you need to get out of here. You need to call it a career. Now, Reed also told ESPN on Tuesday, which was, remember, 420, that he's getting involved in the cannabis industry. Uh, Reed revealing to ESPN that he had relied on marijuana to help with his injuries during his career. I actually think that's a much better thing to do than to rely on a bunch of pain pills and to get hooked on opioids. So I don't vilify in any way Jordan Reed for having done that. But you got to wonder, right? I mean, this was either one huge coincidence or this was part of a master marketing plan that Jordan Reed on 420 comes out and says he's getting involved in the cannabis industry. Anyway, Jordan Reed did play this past season. He spent the 2020 season with the San Francisco 49ers, played in 10 regular season games, finished with 26 receptions for 231 yards and four touchdowns on 46 targets. Actually did have a two-touchdown game. The 49ers 31-13 win at the New York Jets in week two included Jordan Reed having two touchdown receptions. The 2021 season, though, how about this, would have been just Reed's age 31 season. He is still so young. And, you know, I know in the NFL, once guys cross over into their 30s, you know, all bets are off in terms of continuing to play. But, like, there are plenty of tight ends who play deep into their 30s. Jordan Reed, his final season ends up being his age 30 season, clearly because of the injuries. You know, we spoke on Tuesday's podcast about the sad tale of Bryce Love with the Washington football team. I would not say that the Jordan Reed tale is as sad as the Bryce Love tale, because at least Jordan Reed had an NFL career. But it is kind of sad, and of course it is a giant what if. What if Jordan Reed had been able to stay healthy? Washington took Reed in the third round of the 2013 NFL draft out of Florida. He was, of course, an exceptional talent. He had speed. He was a terrific route runner. He had great hands. He was a yak-generating machine. I mean, when it came to yardage after catch, you tell me how many guys have been better on the Washington football team over the last decade than Jordan Reed. And when Reed was healthy, he produced. Jordan Reed, over seven seasons with Washington, had 329 receptions for 3,371 yards and 24 touchdowns. For all of the time that he did miss, he still is third among tight ends in Washington history in each of those three categories, receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns. Jerry Smith is number one in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns among tight ends in Washington history. Chris Cooley is number one among Washington tight ends in career receptions in Washington history. But I look at Jordan Reed, and again, even with all the time that he missed, he still goes down as one of the all-time great tight ends in the history of the Washington football team. Like to me, Jordan Reed is among the top four tight ends in Washington history. You know, the way I look at it is Jerry Smith is the clear number one. Chris Cooley is the clear number two. And then either Reed or Don Warren as the number three. And you really can go either way 
in that regard. Reed and Warren are two very different guys who had two very different careers. I mean, Don Warren was a classic blocking tight end, was exceptional in that regard, played for Washington for a number of years, was a part of the Hogs, was a part of the glory days of the franchise. Jordan Reed was, shall we say, not a very good blocking tight end. He did not play for Washington for very long, but Jordan Reed was athletically gifted in a way that blew Don Warren out of the water, okay? I mean, let's just be honest about things. And I actually would say Jordan Reed was the most gifted of all four of these guys. If you're going Reed versus Jerry Smith versus Chris Cooley versus Don Warren, Jordan Reed was the most gifted of all those guys. But to me, Jerry Smith is the clear number one. Jerry Smith's career really is something. This is a guy who had 60 career regular season touchdown receptions despite playing in the 1960s and 1970s. So a very different NFL from a passing nature. And despite playing so much of his career for a head coach in George Allen, who was, you know, not some big time proponent of the passing game. And yet still, Jerry Smith totaled 60 touchdown receptions in his regular season career. It is remarkable, the career that Jerry Smith had. And he, to me, is one of those former Washington players for whom there is an excellent case for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, we talked Joe Jacoby. We talked Brian Mitchell. I recently talked up Gary Clark. I think there's a case to be made for Dexter Manley. There is a very good case to be made for Jerry Smith. But anyway, Jordan Reed is among the big four in terms of the best tight ends in Washington football team history. Jordan Reed's 2015 and 2016 seasons, you can put up against any season by any tight end in the history of the Washington football team. Jordan Reed in 2015 had 87 receptions for 952 yards and 11 touchdowns on 114 targets over 14 regular season games. And if you go back to some of the specifics of that 2015 season, right? Washington goes nine and seven, wins the NFC East. Reed in the epic, you like that game. You like that? You like that? Yes, Kirk, thank you. The you like that game, also known as the Code Red game. That's critical. It's uh, Code Red for us. Yes, Jay, thank you. The 31-30 win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on October 25th, 2015. The greatest comeback win in franchise history as Washington overcame a 24-0 second quarter deficit. Reed was a monster in that game. 11 receptions, including two for touchdowns. How about the stretch run for Washington that season? Washington in 2015 went from 5-7 and seven to 8-7, and seven, and then eventually 9-7, and seven, in clinching the NFC East. Reed over three consecutive big meaningful wins in December. 25 receptions for 333 yards, and five touchdowns on 27 targets. In the biggest games, Jordan Reed delivered in that 2015 season. And then in the playoff loss to the Green Bay Packers, 35-18 at FedEx Field in the wildcard round in January 2016, Reed was very good in that game. Nine receptions for 120 yards and a touchdown on 17 targets. Again, Reed's 2015 was epic, and then he followed that up with a great 2016. Jordan Reed in 2016, 66 catches, for 686 yards and six touchdowns on 89 targets, albeit over just 12 games. But I will never forget, and I'm sure many of you listening will never forget, what Reed did on Thanksgiving 2016. That 31-26 Washington loss at the Dallas Cowboys. Reed in the game suffering a grade three left AC joint separation early in the second quarter, but ultimately returning and finishing with 10 receptions for 95 yards and two touchdowns on 12 targets. And among his catches was one of the most sensational catches I've ever seen a Washington player make, given the circumstances. A one-armed, third and four, 33-yard reception that came despite pass interference by then-safety Byron Jones 
on the penultimate snap of the third quarter. The drive resulted in a second and goal five-yard touchdown reception by Reed on the first snap of the fourth quarter. But here you have a guy dealing with, again, a grade three left AC joint separation. He makes a one-armed catch despite pass interference for a huge gain. Again, third and four, 33-yard catch. So on a third down, he does all this, and the drive ends up in a touchdown catch by this guy. Can you name for me a catch ever made by any Washington player with a higher degree of difficulty? Third down, dealing with a grade three left AC joint separation. He gets interfered with by the defensive back, and he makes the catch, and with one arm. I mean, it was spectacular, that play by Jordan Reed. And that game, that performance, forever put to bed any notion of Jordan Reed being soft. But Jordan Reed was hurt a lot. And we all get this. Reed, over seven seasons with Washington, 2013 through 2019, played in just 65 of a possible 112 regular season games. That works out to 58%. That's it. Less than six out of 10 of the possible regular season games that Jordan Reed could have played in for Washington, he did play for Washington. I mean, this became a spring tradition unlike few others in this area. Every year, Jay Gruden talking about, well, if we can just keep Jordan Reed healthy. You know, that, that that was a phrase. How many times over the years was that said here? If we can just keep Jordan Reed healthy. And like you went into every season saying that. Hey, is Washington going to be the good? You, you went into every season saying that, right? Hey, is Washington going to be good on offense this season? Well, you know what? If Jordan Reed can stay healthy. Yeah, you know what? If Jordan Reed can stay healthy. Gosh darn it. If Jordan Reed can just stay healthy. Every year we had that conversation. Every year. We said some version of that over and over and over and over again. And why? Because it was true. Because if Jordan Reed stayed healthy, things went well, like in 2015 and 2016. And when he didn't stay healthy, things went down the tubes. The injuries for Jordan Reed were many. His 2013 rookie season, he played in just nine games due to a quad contusion and then concussion. His second season, 2014, Reed played in just 11 games due to multiple hamstring injuries. 2017, Reed played in just six games as he was placed on the reserve slash injured list on December 12, 2017, off having been inactive for six consecutive games due to a hamstring injury. But the bigger problems for Reed in 2017, as you may recall, were his toes, and he actually underwent surgeries to remove the sesamoid bone in each big toe, December 2017, February 2018. In 2018, Reed played in 13 games. But as you may recall, he was kind of like bizarrely invisible for so much of that season. He put up decent numbers, but you didn't notice Reed the way you remembered noticing him in those peak seasons of 2015 and 2016. And Reed ultimately ended up missing three games in 2018, got placed on the reserve slash injured list on December 27th of that season of having been inactive for the previous two games due to a foot slash ankle injury. And then came 2019, and this was an absolute killer. Jordan Reed did not play in a single regular season game in 2019, his final season with Washington. The team put him on the reserve slash injured list on October 12th, 2019, of him having been inactive for each of the first five games of that regular season. Why? A concussion that Reed suffered in Washington's third preseason game. I remember this. There was a lot of talk that preseason of Huckam Jay isn't playing starters more. And doesn't Jordan Reed need to be out there at least a little bit just to work up a sweat and get himself ready for the regular season? And so Jay put Reed out there in game three 
of that preseason. And I'm not saying Jay necessarily did that to bow to public pressure, but I do remember that being a conversation that summer. Reed goes out there, and within about 30 seconds, it felt like, he gets hurt in this meaningless third preseason game for Washington in 2019, suffers another concussion. It is the seventh documented concussion for Reed going back to his time in Florida. Who knows what the real number actually is? And that's it. Jordan Reed never plays for Washington again. And Washington ends up releasing Reed February 20th, 2020. It was a very sad ending for Jordan Reed with the Washington football team. And there's no doubt he does go down as one of the great what ifs in the history of the franchise. But he also goes down as one of the best tight ends in the history of the franchise. It really speaks to his incredible talent and it speaks to his peak being a very high peak. You know, some athletes are like that. The peaks don't last long, but boy, are the peaks high and the peaks sharp. And Jordan Reed for two seasons, 2015 and 2016, was magnificent. He was elite as a pass catching tight end. And so I know there's a lot of lamenting and kind of sadness with Jordan Reed and these lookbacks on his time with Washington. But to me, I think there is cause for some celebration of, you know what? This guy got to a level over multiple seasons that most NFL players can only dream of. He got paid, he had himself a career, and now he's off into the cannabis industry with hopefully his faculties in check and an opportunity to live a comfortable life with his family moving forward. Yeah, and one of the ways for Jordan to make sure that he has a comfortable rest of his life is if he's ever selling a home to do so with a real estate agent who doesn't gouge him when it comes to the commission. Let's be honest, nobody likes having to give tens of thousands of dollars to a real estate agent who you just met. Well, what if I told you if that last part is no more? One of the great supporters of this podcast, John Granlin, John G with Real Broker, is changing the way that real estate is done. He is selling homes for free. That's right, for free. Zero commission, and you don't lose out on anything. Here's how it works. For those living in Northern Virginia, if you buy and sell with John Granlund, the commission paid to John when you sell is refunded back to you when you buy, making the total commission paid to John when you sell zero. You heard that right, zero. Now this, is it 3%, 4%, 6%? That's gone. The number is zero. And if you're not selling a home in Northern Virginia, no worries. John can connect you with a top producing partner agent who can offer you the same great services with a discounted fee. Some conditions apply. Just ask Diane, who had John Granlin sell a single-family home in Vienna. Quote, I interviewed three realtors. John came in with an excellent marketing and pricing plan. He held several open houses, advised me on pricing, and got me a great price in no time at all. I highly recommend John to anyone in Vienna slash Northern Virginia, end quote. Here's all you need to do. Check out this website, johngsellsforfree.com and see what John Grandlin can do for you. The website says it all, johngsellsforfree.com. Zero commission sale of your home. This is game changing or better yet, Call John Grandland and tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. You need to sell your home. You're not sure who to turn to. John Grandland is the answer. The phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, Zero Commission Real Estate. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. 
Our special guest, Ian Wharton, NFL writer, NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports, is coming up in minutes. All kinds of good talk about the upcoming NFL draft from a Washington football team perspective. Also lots on NFL draft theory. Along those lines, we had something that popped up on Tuesday that really isn't that big of a deal, but it was the kind of thing that in this day and age got a lot of attention. And to me, it's worth exploring here on the podcast because it raises one of the more interesting phenomenons with the Washington football team when it comes to the NFL draft. So Peter Schrager, who's the co-host of that NFL network show, Good Morning Football, put out his second mock draft for this upcoming draft in a piece that came out on NFL.com on Tuesday morning. And Peter Schrager in this mock draft, one of about a billion mock drafts out there right now, has Washington taking a running back with the number 19 overall pick. The running back is Clemson's Travis Etienne. Right, Schrager, quote, first round running backs might be a dying breed, but I love this addition to Scott Turner's offense. Etienne is electric between the tackles and in the open field as a ball carrier, but also adds value in the passing game. Washington still needs another playmaker or two on offense to be a threat in the NFC, end quote. Look, there is no doubt. Travis Etienne was an exceptional running back at Clemson, but he also is a running back. And the idea of taking a running back in this day and age in the NFL in the first round is cuckoo. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, exactly. And I don't think we need to explore that any further, okay? I mean, I think most people at this point understand that running backs, yes, they matter. Every position matters. But running backs all the time are found on the cheap. And expensive running backs or first round running backs all the time turn out to be not that much better than their cheaper counterparts. We have seen this over and over and over and over again. Offensive line and run game scheme matter a lot more than actual running backs. Not to say that you don't want good running backs, but the notion of spending a top five or even top 10 or even first round pick on a running back, that is so antiquated at this point. And we're about 10, 15 years into this now. So like this isn't even really that new of a thing anymore. But here's what's interesting about Washington when it comes to drafting running backs. Washington in this past happy NFL is going into this 2021 NFL draft, having taken at least one running back in each of the last 12 drafts. Believe it or not, Washington is the only NFL franchise to have had a stretch of 12 consecutive drafts in which the team took at least one running back since the NFL draft went to seven rounds, beginning with the 1994 NFL draft. So Washington, as we speak, is in the midst of an unprecedented streak of taking running backs in NFL drafts. Now, not a single one has been taken in a first round, but that is remarkable, isn't it? That in each of the last 12 drafts, Washington has taken at least one running back. Washington is the only NFL team to have a streak like this. 12 straight drafts take at least one running back since the draft went to seven rounds beginning with the 1994 draft. I I had not really looked at it that way and I had not really considered things that way, but sure enough, it is the case. Here's the list. 2009, Washington took Eddie Williams in the seventh round. 2010, Washington took Dennis Morris in the sixth round. 2011, Washington took Roy Hallou Jr. in the fourth round and Evan Royster in the sixth round. 2012, maybe the greatest running back selection of them all, at least in recent Washington football team history, Washington took Alfred Morris in the sixth round. 
2013, another good one. Washington took Chris Thompson in the fifth round. 2014, Washington took the immortal Lake Seastrunk in the sixth round. 2015, Washington took Matt Jones in the third round. Matt Jones, remember, at one point, Jay Gruden couldn't even remember the guy's name. Obviously, I'm not going to give up on uh, Matt, Matt, Matt Jones. Yes, Jay, it is Matt Jones. Thank you very much. 2016, Washington took Keith Marshall in the seventh round. 2017, Washington took another one of Jay's favorites, Samaje Pirine, in the fourth round. Remember when Jay was talking up Samaje because Jay didn't want to keep Adrian Peterson on the team going into the 2019 season? Uh, 2018, Washington took Darius Geis in the second round. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, thank you very much. 2019, we talked about this guy on Tuesday's podcast. Washington took Bryce Love in the fourth round. And 2020, what looks to be a terrific selection so far, Washington took Antonio Gibson in the third round. So it's not like it's been all whips. I mean, Alfred Morris hit. Chris Thompson eventually hit. It took a while for Thompson, but once he hit, he definitely hit. And Antonio Gibson so far, you'd say hit. But by and large there, there are a lot of misses, you know, albeit with a lot of day three picks in the mix. Again, it's not like a bunch of first or even second round picks are on that list. But it is notable, right? Washington, the only team in the NFL since the draft went to seven rounds to take at least one running back in each of 12 consecutive drafts. Is that going to continue this upcoming draft? Who the heck knows? I will say this. It doesn't have to continue. Washington has under contract the three top running backs from last season in Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Peyton Barber. And understand this about Washington's running game last year. And I'm not a big believer in need dictating draft. So like if something is a need, that doesn't mean you have to take that something. Conversely, if something isn't a need, that doesn't mean that you don't take that something. But for what it's worth, Washington's running game last regular season was better than most people realized. Washington in the 2020 regular season, it was 14th in the NFL in rushing offense per football outsiders DVOA metric. DVOA is something I reference all the time. It stands for defense adjusted value over average. It's basically an efficiency measure of what you do. And it's great because it factors in context. So it factors in quality of opposing defense and it factors in game situations. So in other words, a one yard run on a third and one in the fourth quarter of a close game against a stout defense is looked at very differently than a one yard run on a first and 10 in the first quarter of a blowout win over a very bad defense, right? If you just go by yards or yards per carry, each run that I just described counts the same. It's looked at the same. DVOA doesn't do that. It's a much more sophisticated way of evaluating NFL offense, defense, and special teams. So I always go by DVOA. I never go by the official NFL rankings of yards. I think that's just a faulty way of doing things. Washington was middle of the pack last season and rushing offense DVOA. That's not elite, but I think that's better than what most people would have thought. If you break it down individually, Antonio Gibson last regular season was sixth among 47 qualified running backs, those each with at least 100 rush attempts in rushing DVOA. J.D. McKissick last regular season was 12th among 52 non-qualified running backs, those each with between 20 and 99 rush attempts in rushing DVOA. Washington's run game last season was efficient. It maybe wasn't used as much as some people wanted, but the running game when utilized was good on a per play basis. Washington's running game was not the problem on offense last season. The passing game was the problem. Washington's passing game was dead last in the NFL in DVOA for the 2020 regular season. So there's that to consider too with this thing of Washington taking a running back once again in this upcoming draft. Here's something else though. 
And again, you know, Peter Schrager puts out a mock. I mean, he does it for entertainment purposes. I'm certainly doing what I'm sure he wants, which is to mention his name and talk about his mock draft. And that's fine. I got nothing against Peter Schrager. But understand this. Taking running backs with first round picks doesn't work. And even when people do the thing of, well, but what about Ezekiel Elliott? Well, what about Saquon Barkley? No, it still doesn't work. And it's not something you really should ever do in today's NFL. You know, I I never say never. Okay, so maybe there's like that one out of 100 circumstances in which you say, okay, go ahead and take this back in this spot. But taking running backs with first round picks is almost always a bad idea in today's day and age. And I want you to consider the following from Warren Sharp, a great NFL analytics guy. This is in a piece for NBC Sports that was published actually just this past Monday. Okay, as we approach this upcoming draft, Guess how many of the most recent 20 first-round running backs have led their teams in yards per carry as primary starters as rookies, right? So you think that's a pretty good threshold to see, does this guy work out right away? First-round running back in his first season, does he lead his team in yards per carry as a primary starter? Over the last 20 first-round running backs, how many guys have done that, do you think? The answer is five. Five out of 20, 25%. That's it. How about this with recent first round running backs? As we enter this upcoming NFL draft, of the 15 first round running backs taken from 2009 through 2020 who could have earned second contracts with their teams, how many do you think got those second contracts? Again, we're looking at 15 first round running backs taken over the last 12 NFL drafts in terms of those backs who have come up for second contracts. How many do you think got second contracts? Five. That's it. Five out of 15. One out of three. In fact, six of those 15 running backs have been cut before their first contracts ended. So more first round running backs over the last 12 NFL drafts have been cut than have received second contracts in terms of those backs who have come up for second contracts. Think about that. I mean, the recent history streams, even if you are convinced a guy is worthy of a first round pick as a running back, you still shouldn't do it. And then there's maybe the best part of all, okay? In those instances in recent NFL drafts in which first round running backs have worked out, i.e. the guy has ended up being really good, what has happened? (laughs) Teams have given those backs big money contract extensions before those backs rookie contracts have been over, thus negating the benefits of the rookie contracts. You know, one of the great appeals now with the NFL draft, especially with getting a first round pick is you have the guy under team control for five seasons, four seasons under the rookie contract, and then the option of exercising a fifth year option. And what has happened with these first round running backs who have worked out is they end up holding out or they end up threatening to hold out, or they make a big stink, and the team caves, and the team pays the guy before the team has to pay the guy. You have a rookie wage scale in the NFL since 2011. So rookie contracts, even for first-round picks, are not nearly as onerous as they were like 10, 12, 15 years ago. This day and age, that's not the case. And yet teams have like willingly undone that with these successful first-round running backs. Take the Rams and Todd Gurley. The then St. Louis Rams took Todd Gurley with the number 10 pick in the 2015 NFL draft out of Georgia. But the Rams in July 2018 signed Gurley to a four-year, $57.5 million contract extension. 
with $21.95 million guaranteed at signing. What happened? The Rams, less than two years later, released Todd Gurley, extended him in July 2018, released him in March 2020. How about our friends down in Dallas? How about them Cowboys? Yes, how about them Cowboys? The Cowboys took, of course, Ezekiel Elliott with the number four pick in the 2016 NFL Draft out of Ohio State. Yes, the boys spent a top five pick on a running back in recent seasons, and them boys signed Zeke in September 2019 to a six-year, $90 million contract extension with $28.05 million guaranteed at signing. Zeke, this past season, had the worst season of his career by far. Career-worst yards per carry of 4.01, a career-worst tying six fumbles, a career-worst five lost fumbles. I tweeted this on Tuesday. Do the compare and contrast. Big money Zeke in 2020 versus third round rookie Antonio Gibson in 2020. You ready for this? Yards per carry. Gibson, 4.7. Zeke, 4.0. Rushing touchdowns. Gibson, 11. Zeke, 6. Rushing DVOA ranking. Gibson, 6th in the NFL. Zeke, 27th in the NFL. And his teammate, fellow running back Tony Pollard, was 13th in the NFL. And fumbles, Gibson had two. Zeke had six. So Antonio Gibson, who cost a fraction of what Zeke cost in 2020, outperformed Zeke in 2020. And I know Ezekiel Elliott is a good running back. Like, I get that. He has had some big seasons for Dallas. But the whole point of this is you can approximate or equal or even exceed the production of even the best running backs in the NFL with far cheaper options. It happens all of the time. And so to spend big money on a running back is a big no-no. And spending a first-round pick on a running back is a big no-no because you can find someone close to as good, as good, or maybe even better, far deeper into NFL drafts. And even as undrafted rookies, there have been a bunch of undrafted rookies who've come into the NFL and done quite well as running backs. How about the guy with the Baltimore Ravens, Gus Edwards? Gus was signed by the Ravens as an undrafted free agent at a Rutgers in May 2018. Are you aware of what Gus Edwards has done over the last three seasons? He has totaled 2,152 rushing yards and averaged 5.2 yards per carry. Gus Edwards has been a stud in that Ravens backfield. He's had at least 700 rushing yards in each of his first three seasons. Again, undrafted free agent signing at a Rutgers in May 2018. That's how you do the running back position. Sign guys on the cheap, have a good offensive line, have a sound scheme, and let your backs go to work. Don't pay them big money. Don't spend major draft capital on them. Block it up well, scheme it up well, and do your thing. That's how you do running back. You don't take running backs with first round picks. Uh, there ain't no chance to me that Washington takes Travis Etienne or any running back at number 19 overall in eight days on night one of the 2021 NFL draft. What will be intriguing is does the streak continue? Again, 12 consecutive drafts in which Washington has taken at least one running back. I don't have a real problem if Washington continues the streak, but I'm not touching a back any sooner than day three of the draft. All right, eight days away are we from the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, one of the best guys out there when it comes to talking NFL Draft, especially quarterbacks, Ian Wharton. 
NFL writer and NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports. He's a great follow on Twitter, at NFL Film Study. Ian, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited for the draft. The offseason's been one of the more eventful ones I can remember <laughs> with all the trades and, and everything before the draft. So I'm super excited. It's a really good class, and it's been fun evaluating these prospects and just kind of ready for the event to be here. Yeah, I'm with you, man. It feels like we've been counting it down for about six years at this point, so uh, it'll obviously uh, be here soon enough. So your mock draft version 7 came out on Monday, and you had the Washington football team taking the TCU safety, Trevon Merrig, with the number 19 overall pick. What would Washington be getting in Merrig? So Merrig's really fun. Um, he's just he's a versatile safety. I love defenders from uh, Gary Patterson's defense there at TCU because a lot of them are so intelligent. He really looks at guys who are versatile. They're comfortable in a variety of roles. He puts them in different alignments and very uh, progressive alignments as well. They use seven defensive backs often. So it's very similar to what you want to see from the new age NFL, all these passing attacks. So we get to see him single high. We get to see him in the slot and coverage. We see him against receivers, tight ends. And I love that ability. I think that's exactly what teams need to be investing into instead of like these box type of safeties, at least early in the draft. I mean, there's still value in the land and Collins type, but you have to have complementary players. And obviously Washington knows about that. So from him, I think he'd just be a great complement to a team with uh, some, some corners that you really need a presence over the top and, and to really ex- uh, give them the confidence to excel in the scheme. So three guys who've come up a lot for Washington are Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons, the Notre Dame linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, and Virginia Tech offensive tackle Kristen Derisaw. How likely is any of those three being available to Washington at 19, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think they're all pretty likely. I mean, that's that's the tough part of where Washington's picking is because I think there is a scenario where you could have all three of those guys on the board. And I know in my mock draft, I debated all three of them. I think throughout the seven different uh, mocks that I've put, I feel like I've put each one of those to Washington at one point or another. I think maybe Parsons is the only one that I haven't, but he could obviously slip all the way out of the first round. So it's just, it's a very unique draft linebackers, especially sometimes I feel like I'm shoehorning them into the first round. It's not because of a talent thing. I mean, obviously Parsons is extremely talented, JOK from Notre Dame is the perfect new age linebacker for the NFL, but I don't really value linebackers like that. And when I talk to teams, a lot of teams don't really value linebackers like that either. And then sometimes they'll turn around and, and, and go against what they just said too. It's because maybe just the right player, the right fit, maybe it's, you know, just the way that they project the player or the board didn't fall the way that they thought. So, and Darisaw, I think that he's, his value is kind of all over the place too. It's just a matter of scheme fit. And some of that is, you know, how confident are we that we can get him on the field year one and get a good season out of him compared to the uh, the peers in his class? And then some of it is just like, you know, we don't have the time. We, we either have to start this guy or other teams are like, no, we can go ahead and slow bake him year one. So I think it's possible, if not likely, that two out of the three will be on the board. I think Parsons is the one guy. We could see him go anywhere from like 11th or 12th, maybe even as high as Denver at nine, all the way out of the first round. So and it's not really a talent thing for him. It's the fact that he's, he sat out 2020 and then some, some teams are concerned about his character, but I, I don't think that's a sweeping statement in the sense that he's a bad guy. It's just that he hasn't always, um, doesn't have like the cleanest resume, I should say. Yeah, definitely seems to be a lot of variance with Micah Parsons and where he's going to end up going. 
So what first drew me to you were your incredibly detailed charts for quarterbacks. I mean, these charts, for those of you who haven't seen them, are something else. Color-coded, breaking down quarterbacks in, like, granular detail. I'm just curious, like, how long have you been doing these charts, and how long do they take to put together? Because they are awesome, man, but I'm thinking they probably take a ton of time. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I think I started probably about five years ago, but I've gone back to the 2011 class. So I have data from 2011 up until now on almost every drafted quarterback. Um, there's obviously some guys that just from like small schools that you just can't really find much on, um, or you're relying on like all 22. Um, I forget the senior bowl had a guy a couple years ago from D2 that like, it was like watching, you know, a small high school game and I was trying to chart him and, uh, I want to say it was like Pipkins or something like that. And, and but he, uh, you know, so it's kind of a, a funny ride trying to get some of these guys' tape, but it's just an interesting project. I didn't really start with any expectations, but it's been fun to build a database and kind of see like what criteria actually project well the NFL and not. Um, it takes quite a bit of time. I usually will do like an individual graphic and I'm going to wait till after the draft to release those. Um, just kind of showing like where individually these players stack up against the historical database that I have. So really the last decade of prospects and it's kind of nice to see. And then I'll kind of filter through in like threads, like I'll put videos and gifts and stuff like that and be like, okay, like here's why I think what I think. Um, here's what I'm seeing on film. Here's what doesn't really match up between the data and what I see personally. Um, so it's a good exercise. It's just kind of a good way to, for me to be able to say like, you know, here's what I see and why, but then also sometimes it's like, Hey, I thought X, Y, Z. And then the player and the data show, you know, something else. So it's a good way for me to kind of check my biases, kind of check to see, am I just allowing a small sample size to, to influence my opinion? Or sometimes I'll just go against the data and be like, you know what, this is what this says, but I still think, you know, X, Y, Z. So it's kind of fun. It's for everyone to kind of interpret on their own. Um, I do think that it's helpful in showing great prospects from good prospects and bad prospects from average prospects. It's really good at filtering out guys who aren't good and kind of confirming that and guys who are really at risk of not being good. So I think it's better at that than it is necessarily standing out, uh, making like those average to above average guys look great. So um, it's just kind of things I've seen over the last couple of years, but I'm glad that you enjoy them. I, I really like making them. It's kind of a fun niche to have. Yeah, no doubt. It's great. So I can't wait till the next batch of those does come out. You reference this though, and I think this is such an interesting thing, like which criteria does best correlate to guys playing well at the NFL level. What have you found in that regard? I mean, it, it seems like it is such a crapshoot, especially with quarterbacks. What do you know? What have you found in terms of the data in college that best translates to a guy being good at the NFL level? Yeah, so I would have thought that it would have just been general accuracy beyond the line of scrimmage, um, and especially throws beyond 10 yards. So I try to put them in the buckets, so like 0 to 10 yards, 11 to 19 yards and then 20 plus yards. Um, I'll put like versus pressure and then also conversion downs and how do they perform in all these different situations. So I would have thought that maybe against pressure was the strongest. It's, it's, it's okay. It's a little bit of an indicator, but really it's the short passing to so zero to 10 intermediate passing 11 to 19 and then the interception rate. And so interception rate, you would think, okay, cool. The lower, the better. That's not necessarily the case. You don't really want guys who aren't testing tight windows. You really want guys kind of in that, I think percentage-wise, it's probably about 2.5% to about 3.9%. So there's a lot of not great players in that range, but generally the great players are in that range. And so you don't really want guys that are too cautious, and obviously you don't want guys who are 
over the edge there. And, and I do try to, I do tally interceptable passes. It's not too liberal of a use of that term. I know some people will, you know, give credit to an interceptable pass when in like the defensive back maybe had a chance at it. Mine is, does it hit the defenders in the hands or like in the face mask? So yeah, I'm not too liberal when it comes to interceptable passes. Um, if it hits a guy's in the hands, reasonably catchable. I'll count it as an interceptable pass, but I'm not out here trying to penalize the quarterbacks um, or give too much credit to the defender. It's not like, oh, Patrick Peterson would have caught that, but this random guy in college didn't. You know, I'm not trying to, to project too far forward in that. It really is what it is type of analysis. So when I'm looking at those guys, I'm looking at that short and intermediate accuracy. We've seen that in the NFL. It's a quicker passing game. So we want guys who can get the, rid of the ball quickly, avoid turnover-type throws on those quick outs, those 0-10 to 10 yard throws and then intermediate accuracy. Can they make those throws across the field? That far hash is the hardest throw in football. A lot of guys don't have the arm to do that in college. If you can do that in college consistently and avoid those interceptable throws, generally speaking, you at least have a chance in the NFL physically to to make it. And then we get to the mental processing part, which is often against pressure and then also um, just making contested throws. If you can even, if you're willing to make those throws, you're usually going to be rewarded. If you have the accuracy, you're going to be rewarded. So it all kind of comes together. Um, but I'm usually looking at those short and intermediate throws first. With the interceptable passes, I'm assuming you take out like a heave at the end of the half downfield or a ball that is clearly dropped by the target and it goes into the hands of a defender. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you that, hey, like that was an interception, but that's a drop. It's a drop by the receiver. So I kind of factor that in at the end and come back around and say, hey, like this was an X amount of drop. I actually put in drop touchdowns. I put in dropped uh, first downs too. So just to try to give a little bit of context to saying like, hey, and we've seen this over the years. Like there's been a couple guys that have lost like 10 touchdowns over the course of a year. So their touchdown type throws or touchdown worthy throws are generally higher than what you'll see if you just go to like sportsreference.com or um, stuff like that. You know, so sometimes the numbers don't add up to what you'll see on like a, a full stats page, and it's because they're more subjective stats or it's like production loss type of stats. I love it. Breaking it down scientifically here, Ian Wharton, NFL writer, NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports, a great follow on Twitter at NFL Film Study. Does it seem to you? Is it true? that the hit rate on first-round quarterbacks isn't nearly as good as it should be. Like, I, I know there is a crapshoot element to all positions in the draft, but I know I've done this exercise. I'm assuming you have too. Like, if you take, say, the last 10, 12, 15 years of NFL drafts, it's like a 33% hit rate on first-round quarterbacks. Is that just the way it is at all positions? Is it particularly bad at quarterback? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I do think it is particularly bad at, at quarterback. I, I think there are a couple other positions that are comparable, um, but I think just because the mental makeup of the, the position make it so difficult, whereas a lot of offensive linemen are busts. I, I think the offensive line hit rate is similar to quarterbacks, which is shocking. You would think that's a more physical position than necessarily like mental processing, but because of the high competition and physicality and the reliance on scheme – there's just a lot of factors there, but quarterbacks in general are incredibly risky. Some of that is scheme fits and the importance of scheme with a quarterback and their skill set. Some of that is just work ethic and ability to learn. And some of that is just like genetic, like our ability to learn, I think really um, 
prohibits us sometimes from excelling in what we do. It's not our fault. And we don't know those things based off of college tape and even interviews. Sometimes it's just like Dwayne Haskins is kind of like a good example of this. It's not that someone is dumb or anything like that, but if you don't pick things up fast enough, he had a year to learn things before Ron Rivera was going to give him up, give up on him. It just didn't work out. And maybe that will down the line somewhere else. and Maybe it never will. And he's just an example of many, many, many misses over the years of where we don't really know what went wrong because physically he had all the talent. He should have been a good fit and he just didn't work out. So there's so many more factors, I think, for quarterbacks because of the mental processing part, whereas a lot of other positions are more muscle memory or just pure reaction um, with like hand-eye coordination. And you can get away with it sometimes just because you're more physical and more athletic than your peers. So getting back to the 2021 draft, we have had a lot of conversation here in D.C. about whether Washington should be in the market for trading up to take a quarterback. And obviously, in order to ensure getting the likes of a Trey Lance or a Justin Fields or, you know, I suppose Mac Jones, if San Francisco doesn't take him, you'd have to go from 19 to 4. The cost of such a move up, obviously, would be extreme. In your opinion, is Lance, Fields, or Jones worthy of the cost that would be required to go from 19 to 4? I think you'd have to go by each quarterback. I think Fields and Fields certainly is, in my opinion. I think he's just a really stellar prospect. Um, I think he's the second best quarterback in the class. I think he'll be the guy at number three for San Francisco. I don't, I can't imagine they traded all those assets for someone like Mac Jones. And that's not a huge slight against Mac Jones. It's just physically, he's not what those other two guys are. Um, I think his upside is a lot more limited just because physically he's just not capable of creating outside of the system. Um, he hasn't shown it in, at, at Alabama. I don't think he's going to be a guy that really becomes a creator type of quarterback. He's more of a system guy. He can really do well in a system, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think San Francisco leveraged all those picks for that type of player. Um, I think Lance is worth that, but with the huge caveat that if Washington were to do it, they're looking at him like Josh Allen or Cam Newton, where he's a variance type of player. He's probably never going to be too consistent of a passer. His mechanics are kind of weird. He's a strong arm thrower. He throws downward. And so because of that, it just limits his accuracy upside. It, it would take a really massive overhaul and maybe it's possible, but historically it's very unlikely. And Allen is a good example of guys who just get more accurate over time but it's a very small list of guys who do get accurate over time. So if you get a guy like Lance, you're taking him for the big plays and you're going to live with some of the inconsistencies along the way. I think he's worth it, but you're going into it saying we're not going to be Seattle's offense. We're going to be more like what with, with what Rivera had with Cam Newton previously. Mac Jones probably going to cost less if he doesn't go number three. You might be able to, if they don't take him at three, he might slide all the way to Denver at nine. He might slide out of the top 10 a little bit, maybe looking at like New England. Do they want to jump up for him? So he might cost a little bit less than the other guys. I think with him, great news is he's going to fit into your scheme. He's very accurate. He will maximize your playmakers. He plays with a great moxie. I love his poise as far as trying to throw the ball downfield. He's not intimidated, um, but he also is extremely limited experience and he played with great playmakers around him what happens when everybody around him is uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball is better than what he's working with terry mclaurin is great there's not a whole lot of else in washington right now so and i like what they've done this offseason but he doesn't have five first round receivers on his roster like he did at alabama 
So there's going to, it's going to take some patience. I think mentally we're going to find out more about him over his rookie contract. If he can get quickly, if he can process quickly and get it all quickly, adjust to that pressure quickly, he'll be really good. Like he'd be like Kirk Cousins. Um, so he's an above average quarterback. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think for the right price, you pay that. I mean, is, is that worth two first rounders? I think so. I mean, Washington doesn't have a lot of avenues to get better at the position right now. So it's just all kind of relative to what like the price and the gamble that you're willing to take. I do like this class though. It's a rare quarterback class where you're going to get five first round picks. And I think all these guys are justifiably a first round pick. And I don't think that's, we haven't seen that. I think we've seen that like once in like 15 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what about the second tier quarterbacks? There have been mocks lately having say Kellen Mond to Washington in the second round or Davis Mills to Washington in the second round. You obviously have someone like a Kyle Trask, you know, Jamie Newman's name has come up. Who, who do you like when it comes to that second tier group of QBs? Yeah, and this is this is tough in the sense of most second round QBs get like a year or two. Um, so it's funny. These are the guys that need more development more than anybody, theoretically, because they're not first round picks, but they also have the shortest leash. So at the moment that they show weakness, generally they're replaced. Um Thankfully, this coaching staff in Washington, I think, has more time and more leniency. Um, but the, the expectation, no matter who they get, is going to be that they compete, if not win the job in 2022. Um, so with that, I'm looking at Davis Mills. I think he's that type of big thrower, downfield type of presence, um, guy that you want to develop. He looks the part. Like, everything looks good on film, physically and tool-wise. He just didn't have many starts. And he wasn't in a situation at Stanford where he could really thrive that some of these other guys can. He didn't have the playmakers, didn't have the scheme for it. But I think mentally he'll have to prove that he's able to compete at that level. And some of that's just – we just didn't see it because he only started like 15 games, some really, really low number. Um, Kyle Trask doesn't have the arm. I don't think he's an NFL starter. Um, I, I think he's really a day three type of talent. Um, Jamie Newman, kind of similar to Mills, where like physically you like how he looks – but with him, he's not very accurate. He's not as accurate as Mills, not as accurate as Mond. I think he's really a big project, and that's not – I don't think Washington has the time for him. I think that that's going to be someone um, – maybe like Atlanta. Atlanta maybe takes him in like the third round because they have Matt Ryan for a couple years. If they don't take a quarterback at four, they can actually afford to roll the dice on him for a little bit of time. Um, he wouldn't be a bad fit, but I just think it's too much of a project to bite off with expectations he would start in a year. I do think Mond is interesting. He always left me wanting more at Texas A&M, even though, like, the the experience was there. So, like, it's weird. Is he Dak Prescott? And maybe he is. Maybe he gets out of A&M, he goes to a better coaching situation, better playmakers, and things start to click for him. But I think that's the best-case scenario is that – he takes that rare leap in the NFL because he had everything at his disposal to be successful and just couldn't consistently do it. So if I'm, I, I would consider him in the second round, almost like Jalen Hurts was in the second round. You probably have to see him at some point in 2021 on the field, just like you did with Hurts to see, okay, like, is he getting this quickly enough for us to continue investing in him? It's just, it's, it's so tough. It's so tough to put a second round pick on a guy that you might give three starts and then bail on him. Like those expectations are insane. Um, but that's just the reality of a second round pick. So if I'm Washington, I'm probably trying to get Mac Jones or Trey Lance via trade up. If not, I'm pretty happy with Davis Mills in the second round. I would be less hesitant 
um, about Mills than I would the other quarterbacks in the class. After after Mills, I'm probably passing on this class until maybe like late just to take a potential backup. You maybe just answered this question, but we just talked about the frequency with which first-round quarterbacks don't hit, and it's a frequency that's way too high. It's an even higher frequency, of course, for non-first-round quarterbacks. Is it just because they're not given enough time, or is there more to it than that? And, and, I, and I guess what I'm getting at is, if, if you are a franchise quarterback needy team like Washington, it, like is it even worth taking a quarterback, say, in a second or third round, just because so rarely do you end up finding a franchise quarterback in those rounds? Right, and and that's that's a great question. I, I do feel like teams tend to bail a little bit early on non-first-round quarterbacks, and some of that I get is just because the life cycle of a head coach is so short now. You just don't really have time, and so it's easier just to look for Band-Aids. Um, almost like Washington did with you know Ryan Fitzpatrick, which was a good signing. I mean, I like the signing, but he doesn't help you find a franchise quarterback in the future, so you're either stuck trading up for one or taking one in the second round and just hoping that you found a diamond in the rough. So I think it's worth it. The roster is good. Like, this roster is ready to compete, um, at least at, like, a quality playoff level. And so if you burn a second-round pick on a guy who doesn't work out right away, I think it's fine. It's not going to hurt this coaching staff standing. They can easily justify it. And maybe it happens down the line with whoever they take, and it's not immediate. I do think the league is generally good about identifying the good quarterbacks. I think that they're just bad at identifying the high-risk guys, like the Mitchell Trubisky's, um, these guys that they don't end up getting like their fourth-year option, like Haskins. They probably should have known about Haskins' personality. So unless if you see red flags with like Mond or Mills or anyone like that in this class, because they're a hard worker, if they have the aptitude and you think they have the aptitude to learn, physically they have all the tools. So I think it's a good investment and you can get maybe like a Dak Prescott type situation um, where you just get a really good value and a really nice above average quarterback um, at the very minimum for a great value. If you do, kudos to you because then you can walk away from this draft and feel really great about yourself. I think Washington's in the rare situation for a team that needs a quarterback that it's worth it. Most teams in that situation that where you need a quarterback for the future, don't have that luxury. They have to take one high in the draft. I don't think you can count on getting one in 2022. Who knows about that quarterback class? It's a bunch of young, raw players. If you know what you're getting this year and you want to get them in your system now, it has a nice benefit to it. Final topic, and I appreciate your time so much. In today's NFL, with the proliferation of read option looks, with the many great quarterbacks who are, in fact, mobile, how important to you is mobility when evaluating a college quarterback prospect and how he might do in the NFL? Like, I don't think anyone would ever say, well, how fast you run matters more than how fast you process or how well you throw. But it really does feel like if you, your quarterback isn't mobile, you're really missing out in today's NFL. Where are you on the importance of quarterback mobility? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they need to be Trey Lance type mobile where they're going to possibly run for six, 700 yards in a season. Um, they obviously don't need to be Lamar Jackson, but uh, I also don't know that you can be a total stiff like Jared Goff. Um, you know, Goff is very slow footed. He's slow to react. It really hurts him in the pocket. Um, and so that it comes back to that mobility of like Tom Brady, Tom Brady is mobile in the pocket. He's just not mobile outside of it. So you have to have quick feet. You have to have quick resetting feet. If you're going to be just a pocket passer, you have to be a great pocket passer. You can't be just an average pocket passer. Whereas if you're mobile, you can probably be an average pocket passer and just buy time. 
Um, Joe Burrow might be a good example of that. Like he's good in the pocket, but he's great outside of the pocket. So you have to compensate one way or another. Um, the more athletic, the more mobile you are, the more leash you're going to get because you're still going to produce in non-traditional ways. It's just hard nowadays to just be a, a purely drop back passer. You better be Drew Brees. Like it, the Mac Jones needs to be really, really good. He has to be extremely smart. He has to be extremely accurate for him to survive more than just like, and be more than an average quarterback. You know, it's, and that's ultimately the goal. You don't want to take an average quarterback in the first round. Um, and I think that's the challenge that more of these traditional type guys like Baker Mayfield's kind of seeing that now starting to get, you know, he's starting to play better, but he had to play better in the pocket because he's not a type of really mobile type of guy. Um, and so that's why you're seeing guys like Lance being pushed up, Fields being, well, Fields deserves it, but like Wilson and, and Fields, these guys are a little bit more unique because they can get outside that pocket and be mobile, get a couple hundred yards rushing, be a threat in the red zone, which is so critical. You have to score touchdowns. Being able to run helps score touchdowns. So I do think it's really important. It'd be tough for me to invest multiple first-round picks into a guy that can't move at all. Um, I, I would be extremely confident that that guy is going to be great in the pocket if he's not mobile. Yeah, no doubt. Ian Wharton, NFL writer, NFL draft analyst for Complex Sports, a tremendous follow on Twitter, at NFL Film Study, great at talking quarterbacks and so much more. Really appreciate your time, Ian. All the best to you. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it. So Tuesday was a very eventful day for the Nationals, but it does end up being a successful day, at least in terms of the outcome of the game. The Nationals improved to 6-9, and nine, a 3-2 come-from-behind win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park on Tuesday night in Game 2 of a three-game series. And so, yes, on this Wednesday, we can say... I'm proud of the boys. Yes, thank you very much, Davey Martinez. The Nats pull off the one-run win over St. Louis just hours after putting Juan Soto on the 10-day injured list with a left shoulder strain. More on that momentarily, but the Nats get a much-needed strong start from Patrick Corbin. The Nats overcome a 2-1 eighth-inning deficit with two runs in the bottom of the eighth, during which the Cardinals bizarrely used a five-man infield. Not something you see often, period. Certainly not something you see often in an eighth inning, but the Cardinals manager, Mike Schild, going with the five-man infield. It really ended up not playing that much of a role in the Nats scoring the two runs in that bottom of the eighth. But that was wacky. But the Nationals end up pulling off the win. Now, the big takeaway from the Tuesday for the Nats is Juan Soto going on the IL. Nobody saw this coming, all right? Usually with the Nationals, if there is injury confusion or an injury mystery, it's initially a guy is hurt. We're told that it's not that big of a deal. And then it turns out it was a much bigger deal than we were ever led to believe. In this case, nobody had any clue that Juan Soto was ailing. But we find out like an hour or so before the game that the initial lineup isn't the lineup. Juan Soto was out of the lineup. And he's now, in fact, on the 10-day injured list. Left shoulder strain is the diagnosis. Uh, the Nats, as a corresponding roster move, recalled outfielder Yadiel Hernandez from the alternate training site in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The initial feeling is that this isn't that big of a deal for Soto and he should be back sooner rather than later, but we hear that all the time with Nats injuries, so I'm not going to believe it until we see it, you know, and just you'll hope for the best, but you will understand that if the best isn't what you get, you're not exactly shocked. Uh, this is the third career injured list stint for Juan Soto, but just the second due to injury. He missed time back in May 2019 due to back spasms. He missed the first seven games of last season after testing positive for COVID-19, although every belief at this point is that that was 
a false positive, and now he finds himself on the 10-day IL due to a left shoulder strain. And he joins a very crowded 10-day IL for the Nationals. I mean, this is something else. And I know every team deals with injuries, so I don't want to play the violin here for the Nats, but you look at who's on the IL right now. Soto, Steven Strasburg, John Lester, Will Harris, Wander Suero, Luis Avilan. Like, that's a lot in the way of key players for the Nats to be on the injured list this early end of the season. And while Soto has been a bit up and down, he overall has been productive. 14 games, 61 plate appearances, batting average of 300, on-base percentage of 410, slugging percentage of 460. Like, you definitely would like to have seen Juan hit for some more power, and you know that that was coming. But he was batting 300. He did have a 410 on base. And so with Juan Soto out, Davey Martinez went with a reconfigured lineup. Andrew Stevenson was the Nats starting right fielder in place of Soto. But it wasn't just that. Stevenson also was the Nats number one batter. Yes, even with Juan Soto out, Davey still had Victor Robles buried toward the bottom of the lineup in that number eight spot. Victor Robles can do nothing at this point to get himself back to being the Nationals' number one hitter. That which we heard so much about during spring training, Victor Robles, leadoff batter, getting on base, going to give him a shot, see what he can do. Uh, the plug got pulled so quick on that, and Robles now, he's been batting either ninth or eighth over the last week or so. And even Juan Soto being out and Andrew Stevenson being in, that doesn't change anything. Robles still was in that number eight spot on Tuesday night. Stevenson was the leadoff man. And you know what? To Stevenson's credit, he did do a good job. He went one for three with a single and a walk. Stevenson had a leadoff single in the bottom of the third and a leadoff full count walk in the Nats' two-run eighth inning. Robles, he went 0 for 3 with a walk. He drew a two-out full count walk in the bottom of the second. But Davey went Stevenson in the leadoff spot. Josh Harrison was the Nats' starting second baseman and number two batter. And, you know, you were either going to do Trey Turner number two or number three. Davey ends up doing Trey number three. Harrison is number two. Harrison has gotten off to a very good start to his season. Another hit on Tuesday night. Harrison going 1 for 3 with a single and also a hit by pitch. A lot of hit by pitches in these Nats games so far, both for and against, uh, but Harrison on Tuesday night, a single in the bottom of the third, and then the hit-by-pitch came in that Nationals two-run eighth inning. I mentioned Trey Turner. His white-hot start continues. Trey goes two for four with two singles, an RBI, and a stolen base. And how about the job that Trey did on Tuesday night when down in counts? Trey had a two-out single in the bottom of the first, despite having been down in that count at 1.12, and then Trey delivering an RBI single on an 0-2 pitch and a stolen base, and that's two run eighth inning. 15 games into the season, Trey Turner batting average of 305, on base percentage of 349, slugging percentage of 559. He has been excellent. And it's so funny because Trey, like Juan, struggled big time during the exhibition season. And it turns out, especially for Turner, that has meant like nothing come the start of the regular season. So Davey went Stevenson one, Harrison two, Turner three, and Josh Bell four. Josh Bell has been really struggling, and so what he did on Tuesday night was so needed, not just for the Nats, but for him personally. Bell goes one for four with a homer and a hit-by-pitch. Again, a lot of hit-by-pitches here. Uh, Bell took a two-out hit-by-pitch in the bottom of the third, but the biggest moment for him, clearly, the one-out first pitch solo homer to right field of Cardinal starter Adam Wainwright in the bottom of the sixth inning. Bell still has a lot of work to do to get to where he needs to be as a batter. He's been behind on a lot of pitches. But that homer was great. 
The ball, it felt like hung in the air for about an hour and a half. And then, ironically enough, it ended up just barely making it uh, out of the ballpark. But it is a homer. And Josh Bell delivered in that cleanup spot with that solo shot on Tuesday night. Rest of the Nats lineup was Kyle Schwarber, starting left fielder, number five batter, 0 for 3 with a walk and a couple of strikeouts. And the walk was an intentional walk with one out in the Nats' two-run eighth inning. Starling Castro was the Nats' starting third baseman at number six batter, 1 for 4 with a single and two strikeouts. He had a one-out single in the bottom of the second. And Jan Gomes is back out there again. He's been uh, leaned on a ton here so far, and for good reason. He's been hitting well. Uh, Gomes is starting catcher at number seven batter. 0 for 3, but with an RBI walk. It was Jan Gomes who plated the go-ahead run. Gomes drawing a two-out bases-loaded four-pitch walk in the Nats' two-run eighth for a 3-2 lead. So the lineup delivers enough without Soto. I mean, this is the way it's going to be without Juan Soto with, with him out for however long that ends up being. I mean, the offense wasn't killing it with Soto, and now without Soto, you're going to be in worse shape, clearly, unless some guys pick it up, and that's where the hope comes in for guys like Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber particularly, but they still have work to do. I mean, Josh Bell, even with the homer on Tuesday night, has an OPS of just 564 on the season. Kyle Schwarber has an OPS of just 635 on the season. But with all of this said, you very much could argue the single biggest development on Tuesday for the Nationals was the outing put forth by Patrick Corbin. We've been ranting and yelling and screaming and complaining about the Nationals starting pitching so far. And all of these blow-up outings and all of these blowout losses and the likes of Steven Strasburg struggling and then going on the 10-day injured list and Joe Ross doing well and then struggling and Eric Fetty initially struggling, although he's been better lately. And Patrick Corbin having been wretched over his first two starts of the season, Corbin makes his third start on Tuesday night and he's lights out. He was great. This is exactly what the Nationals needed from Patrick Corbin. He goes out there and he tosses six scoreless innings, five strikeouts versus four hits, a double and three singles and no walks. And he throws 52 of his 76 pitches for strikes. The question was, why didn't Davey leave Corbin in the game longer? I mean, just 76 pitches thrown over six scoreless innings. And, you know, Davey explained it. He said, look, if this was later in the season, Corbin clearly would have continued. But it's early. We don't want to get the guy hurt. You know, we do have our bullpen guys who we like. And, and Davey made mention of this, and I think this was a bigger factor than maybe Davey let on, letting Corbin leave the game on a high note. I think with Corbin having been as bad as he was over those first two outings, Davey wanted to get Corbin out while the getting was still good. And I understand the psychology of that. I also think, though, that's not a very good way to manage. So, you know, I I, I get it with Davey. Like, I, I don't want to go nuts on t- pulling a guy 76 pitches into his third start in a year, okay? And, and in theory, your bullpen should be good enough to hold the lead. And unfortunately, Tanner Rainey wasn't. We'll get to him in a moment. But that was interesting. I mean, a mere 76 pitches and Corbin gets pulled in that game on Tuesday night. But for the game, for the outing, Corbin was great. I mean, if we're going to sit here and rip these guys when they struggle, it's only fair to praise them just as much when they do well. And Patrick Corbin, scoreless top of the first, Corbin gave up back-to-back two-out singles that along with a Kyle Schwarber throwing error put runners on first and third. But Corbin, they got Dylan Carlson to ground out for the third out. Corbin, in a scoreless top of the second, gave up a one-out full-count double to Austin Dean, but then retired each of the next two batters for the second and third outs, including striking out the Cardinals starting pitcher Adam Wainwright on three pitches. Corbin, in a perfect top of the third, struck out Paul Goldschmidt on three pitches for the second out. Corbin, in a perfect top of the fourth, struck out Yadier Molina on four pitches for the first out. Corbin, in a perfect top of the fifth, struck out the Cardinals starting pitcher Adam Wainwright on three pitches for the third out. It was that kind of night for Patrick Corbin. He had it rolling, 
I don't think you can sit here and say, well, that's it. He's fixed. You know, like the line in the movie Office Space, we fixed the glitch. We fixed the glitch. Yeah, I don't know if we fixed the glitch with Patrick Corbin, but this is certainly a giant step forward toward fixing the glitch. We fixed the glitch. Corbin was great on Tuesday night. I give the guy a lot of credit. And that brings us to the Nationals' bullpen, which initially wasn't so great in this 3-2 win over St. Louis. The culprit ends up being Tanner Rainey, who gives up two runs in the top of the seventh. Rainey issuing a leadoff 10-pitch walk of Yadier Molina, then gives up an RBI triple to Dylan Carlson, and then gives up a one-out RBI sack fly to Austin Dean, despite Dean having been down in the count at one point. One, two. We have talked about Tanner Rainey. He was so good for the Nationals last season, especially in terms of being a strikeout pitcher. Rainey in spring training dealt with a muscle strain near his collarbone, ended up not getting going in exhibition play until deep into the exhibition season, and he's still trying to find himself. That's clear. Now, his velocity was up on Tuesday night, so that's good news. But clearly, the overall run prevention was not giving up two runs in that seventh inning with the Nationals nursing a one nothing lead. I mean, that's not what's supposed to go down. I mean, th- this was the A bullpen that was on display on Tuesday night. Understand, Davey went Tanner Rainey in the seventh, Daniel Hudson in the eighth, Brad Hand in the ninth. Those are the Nationals' top three relievers. That is the varsity bullpen that Davey Martinez put out there. And part one of the varsity, Tanner Rainey, did not get the job done. Now, the good news is the rest of the varsity did come through. Daniel Hudson, a perfect eighth inning that included striking out Paul Goldschmidt on four pitches for the third out. And Brad Hand tossed a scoreless ninth despite giving up a one-out double to Yadier Molina. So it's so funny. I mentioned Trey Turner having had a bad exhibition season, but having gotten off to such a great start this year. Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand both had bad exhibition seasons, and yet each guy has been lights out for the Nationals so far this season. But Rainey is the thing. Got to get Tanner Rainey going, especially with Wander Suero and, to a lesser extent, Luis Avilan on the 10-day IL. Oh, by the way, with Avilan, we haven't mentioned this yet, that uh, torn left UCL that uh, he was revealed to have the other day, he is going to undergo Tommy John surgery. So that's it, Luis Avilan. I mean, not that he was like a super key piece to the national season, but he was one of your lefties in the bullpen. Uh, Luis Avilan is, in fact, going to be done for the season. But got to get Rainey right. Like, of all the things going on with the bullpen right now, I think that's the number one thing. Get Tanner Rainey on track, because the Nationals, with Rainey to Hudson to hand, could actually end up having one of the better one, two, three combos in baseball in terms of bullpens. Like, that's pretty good. If all three guys are as good as we know they can be, that can be one of the better back ends in Major League Baseball. Now, I mentioned that one-out double by Yadier Molina off Brad Hand in the scoreless ninth inning. With that double, there was more bad defense by the Nationals, and it had to do with the left fielder, Kyle Schwarber, who was on display a ton defensively in this game on Tuesday night. It felt like in the top of the first inning, every ball was hit to Kyle Schwarber, but Schwarber had problems on balls hit by Yadier Molina in this game on Tuesday night. So first, we'll go to what happened in that ninth inning. Schwarber bobbling the ball on that Molina went out double in the top of the ninth with the Nats nursing a 3-2 lead. Now, Hand does escape the inning unscathed, so it doesn't end up really costing the Nats, and Schwarber wasn't even charged with an error in that moment. But every ball hit to Schwarber is an adventure. It just, it feels that way. It comes off that way. If you watch these games, you see it be that way. And that was the case on Tuesday night. So Schwarber has that boo-boo in the ninth inning. And then you go back to that first inning in which, again, every ball it felt like was hit to Kyle. He committed a throwing error in the top of the first inning, a throwing error on a Yadier Molina two-out single uh, to put runners on first and third. And the throwing error, I mean, some throwing errors are kind of, you know, wishy-washy, like, was that really an error? This was an error. This this was a terrible throw, an awful throw by Schwarber 
to third base. Now, Patrick Corbin did escape that first inning unscathed. And Schwarber, in the inning, to his credit, did have a nice-looking catch, a sliding forward backhanded catch on a first-pitch lineout by Paul Goldschmidt for the second out. But the Nationals' defense is going to be one of these things we're going to track on this podcast throughout the season. And it's already been what we thought it would be, which is spotty, which is shaky. And the guys who've been responsible for the spottiness and the shakiness have been the guys who you would think be responsible for the spottiness and the shakiness. And Kyle Schwarber is among them. Just, you know, he it's an adventure, okay? Anytime the ball is hit to him in left field, it is an adventure. But the Nationals come through, they get the win, they have a shot at the series win with this game on Wednesday afternoon. It's a 405 first pitch. It is Max Scherzer versus Carlos Martinez at Nationals Park. Two Uber strikeout pitchers set to be on display. And whereas every other guy in the Nationals rotation so far has been Jekyll and Hyde, like it feels like either really good or really bad, Max Scherzer has been like the one constant, the one stable guy. You know, he wasn't necessarily great in the season opener in which he gives up the four solo homers, four runs, six innings in that season opening 6-5 win over the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park back on April 6th. Man, does that feel like about three years ago at this time. But since then, Scherzer in a 3 nothing loss at the Los Angeles Dodgers on April 11th, one run in six innings on five strikeouts. And Max, this past Friday night, the one nothing walk-off win over the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park. Outstanding. Seven scoreless innings, 10 strikeouts for Scherzer. That clearly is the Max you want to see on display on Wednesday afternoon. And if the Nats can come out of this series with the win on Wednesday, with the series victory, seven and nine, all things considered, you know, I think you take that at this point, okay? It's certainly not what you would script, but with all these absences, with the COVID-19 situation to begin the year, with the brutal schedule to begin the season, three games against the reigning defending National League East champion Atlanta Braves, three games at the reigning defending World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers, and then six of your next 10 games at or against the St. Louis Cardinals. That This has been a rough way for the Nationals to begin this season. Seven and nine you'll take, but you need the win on Wednesday. And nobody better to have going for the Nationals on the mound than Max Scherzer. So a good win for the Nationals on Tuesday night and a good win for the Orioles on Tuesday night. A 7-5 win at the Miami Marlins in game one of a two-game series. And so Joe Angel, a former radio voice for both the Orioles and the Marlins, if you would, my friend. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, sir. Orioles now 8-9. and And how about who got the win for the Orioles in their win on Tuesday night. It's not often I talk pitcher wins on the Al Galdi podcast, but I will make an exception this time. Matt Harvey on Tuesday night getting his first win since July 2019. Yes, nearly two full years after his previous win, Matt Harvey gets his next win in this game on Tuesday night. Harvey three runs in five innings on four strikeouts. Look, he was not dominant, okay? He gave up eight hits, a triple, and seven singles, but he issued no walks. He threw 82 pitches over the five innings, and he gets his first win since July 2019. Harvey, during his post-game Zoom press conference, quote, to be honest, I didn't know if it was ever going to happen again, end quote. Yeah, uh, you and the rest of us didn't know if it was ever going to happen again. It's been some kind of ride for Matt Harvey in his major league career. He owned New York for a period of time, you know, like 2013, 2015 especially, but Harvey underwent Tommy John surgery in October 2013. In July 2016, he underwent surgery to address thoracic outlet syndrome. And really since then, since that TOS issue, Harvey has not been the same. 
Harvey has become a journeyman. Over the last three seasons, coming into this year, 2018 through 2020, he pitched for the New York Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, the Los Angeles Angels, and the Kansas City Royals. Harvey, over the last five seasons coming into the season, had an ERA of 582 over 411 and two-thirds innings, a far cry from his peak with the Mets. You know, again, you go back to like 2012, 2013, 2015, the guy was an ace. He has been anything but an ace for years now, and it's not like he was ace-like on Tuesday night, but he does enough to get, again, the win. So I feel good for Matt Harvey. You know, you, you like to see things like this happen. Guys bounce back, and Harvey, you know, to whatever extent he can, is bouncing back. He is one of many, as I like to say, chips to be flipped by the Orioles. Hopefully, Harvey's good enough this season where the Orioles can trade him to another team later this season and get back a prospect or prospects. I mean, I have no delusions that, you know, Matt Harvey's going to bring you like a top 10 prospect, but anything is better than nothing. Something is always better than nothing in these cases. Matt Harvey is not here to be a part of the Orioles when they become good again. Matt Harvey is here to tread water for a season, and hopefully you can rehab him to where you can turn him into a younger player moving forward. But good job by Matt Harvey in continuing his comeback. Also, great job by the Orioles' closer, Cesar Valdez. So five Orioles relievers on Tuesday night combined to give up two runs in four innings. The problem guy was Sean Armstrong. He began a Marlins two-run sixth by giving up a single and two walks and then was pulled. But the highlight of the bullpen was Cesar Valdez, who tossed one and a third perfect innings with three strikeouts. Cesar Valdez, so far this season for the Orioles, an ERA of 0.96. He's thrown nine and a third innings. He has given up two runs, one earned. He has 10 strikeouts versus one walk. He's been a real bright spot for the Orioles in their bullpen so far, and he was excellent on Tuesday night. Offensively for the O's, contributions from a bunch of different guys. DJ Stewart had a one-out full count walk in the Orioles' three-run first, despite having been down to the count at 1.02, and also a two-out first pitch RBI double in the top of the fourth. So good to see that from DJ, who was back out there again as the Orioles' starting left fielder and number three batter. Trey Mancini, the starting first baseman and cleanup hitter. Big night for him. One-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the Orioles' three-run first. A leadoff full count homer in the Orioles' two-run third, despite having been down in the count at 1.12, and a two-out five-pitch walk in the top of the fourth. Rio Ruiz had himself a good game. Starting second baseman, number six batter, two-out, two-run double in the Orioles' three-run first, and a leadoff double off the ex-Nat Ross Detweiler in the Orioles' one-run eighth. Yes, Ross Detweiler is still in Major League Baseball. Uh, this was kind of an interesting inning for old Rio because he had the leadoff double. He then got picked off and caught stealing, trying to steal third base, but he ended up being safe due to a throwing error. It's interesting, though, in the accounting for these things, he actually still gets charged with a caught stealing, even though he ended up being safe at third base, but he was safe again because of a throwing error. And Freddie Galvis, who was the Orioles starting shortstop and number seven batter, he had a big night on Tuesday night. A two-out four-pitch walk in the Orioles' three-run first, a two-out full-count solo homer in the Orioles' two-run third, despite having been down at the count of 1.02, and an RBI single off Detweiler in that top of the eighth, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. So all of these potential chips to be flipped, I'm thinking Harvey, I'm thinking Galvis, I still think Mancini, although I don't know if the Orioles would actually do that, trade away Trey Mancini, but I think the O's 100% should be open to trading away Trey Mancini. Uh, All these guys coming through to varying degrees on Tuesday night. Also for the O's, uh, they got back an outfielder, but they may have just lost an outfielder. So prior to the game, Austin Hayes got activated off the 10-day injured list, which he'd been on since April 5th due to a right hamstring strain. 
But then during the game, Anthony Santander left the game due to a sprained left ankle. Santander was the starting right fielder at number two batter. He has a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch in that Orioles three-run first inning, but then leaves the game that inning due to suffering a sprained left ankle in diving back to first base on a pickoff throw. Hayes actually replaced Santander, had a two-out single in the Orioles' one-run fourth. But you get back Hayes from a right hamstring strain, and the guy he ends up replacing off the bench, Santander, you lose to a sprained left ankle. Don't know if Santander is going to go on the 10-day IL, but pretty clearly that is a possibility. O's try for a two-game sweep at the Marlins on Wednesday afternoon, beginning at 1:10. Bruce Zimmerman versus Trevor Rogers. All right, so before we call it a pod, I did want to make mention of the latest when it comes to Maryland basketball. You know, it's funny, the offseason for the Terrapins is still less than a month old. That season-ending loss to Alabama in the second round of the NCAA tournament, that was on March 22nd. Today is April 21st, and yet, in less than a month's time, so much has happened with Maryland basketball, right? We have had a contract extension announced for head coach Mark Turgeon, and we have had a ton of player movement news the latest of which came out on Tuesday. Another acquisition for the Turge, Utah transfer and shooting guard Ian Martinez on Tuesday announcing that he's transferring to Maryland. Martinez listed by Utah as being 6'3". He, this past season for the Utes in what was his freshman season, came off the bench for all 25 of Utah's games, averaged 15.8 minutes per game, 5.2 points per game, shot just 11 of 34 on threes, but did go 35 of 59 on twos. Martinez is a kid from Costa Rica. He does not come to Maryland as some automatic slam dunk starter, that is for sure, but he does come to Maryland with an opportunity to play, especially if these potential departures end up becoming actual departures. More on them momentarily. But here now are three transfer acquisitions for Mark Turgeon this offseason. Kudis Wahab, the 6'11 guy from Georgetown. Fats Russell, the point guard from Rhode Island. And now this kid, Ian Martinez, a shooting guard from Utah. And the Terps may well need all three of these guys. I mean, they're definitely going to need Wahab. And I think they're going to end up needing Fats Russell. But for Maryland, you have a number of departures that you're dealing with. And there actually was another departure, or at least potential departure, that came out on Tuesday. Multiple reports that Jarius Hamilton is entering the NCAA transfer portal. Jarius Hamilton already was a transfer. He was with Maryland this past season as a junior Boston College transfer. And Jarius Hamilton essentially was Maryland's sixth man this past year. He played in all 31 games. He was sixth on the Terps in minutes per game at 20.5. And he was number two on the Terps in terms of qualified Maryland players in three-point percentage at 43. Yet Jarius Hamilton was one of Maryland's best three-point shooters this past season. And now he's putting his name into the NCAA transfer portal. So if you're keeping track, and it's hard to do these days, this is now four major at least potential departures and six total at least potential departures for Maryland basketball. Eric Ayala and Aaron Wiggins each announced that he's declaring for the 2021 NBA draft while maintaining collegiate eligibility. Daryl Morsell announced that he is declaring for the NBA draft while maintaining his collegiate eligibility, entering his name into the NCAA transfer portal, but also leaving open the possibility of returning to Maryland. You have now this Jarius Hamilton news that came out on Tuesday, multiple reports that he's putting his name into the NCAA transfer portal. And there are two other Maryland players who have announced this offseason that they're entering the NCAA transfer portal. The big man, the 7-2 sophomore Shoal Mariel, 
and freshman point guard Aquan Smart. Now, neither Mario nor Smart played a lot this past season, but that's not the point. There's still two guys entering that transfer portal. This is college basketball in 2021, people. There is now essentially a free agency in college basketball. There now is very much a hot stove season in college basketball. You have so much player movement off-season in and off-season out now in college hoops. And, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing, like players moving around, players finding better opportunities for themselves. Like, I'm not really against that. I don't see this as like the doom of college basketball or college sports or anything like that. But it does make things a whole lot different. And it does make things tougher for coaches in that you have to recruit a kid to your school and then you essentially have to re-recruit him every offseason to make sure that he doesn't want to transfer. But conversely, it's good for coaches in that you may be losing people, but you also can be picking up people, you know? It's it's just like it is in pro sports now. We're like, you have your offseason, you have your free agency period, and yeah, we're going to lose this guy and that guy, but we're going to gain this guy and that guy. So it does make things interesting. And, and I think it's good for college basketball in that way. Because college basketball, for so many people, has simply become a one-month sport. And it's March. And people just pay attention in March. And they don't really care that much in the other 11 months. Maybe this, in a weird way, can actually help to get people more interested in college basketball. All of this player movement that's going on between each season. Gone are the days, long gone are the days, of a kid going to a school and going there for four years. Okay, Those days have been done for decades with people leaving early for NBA drafts. But now it's even more tumultuous with people transferring every 30 seconds, it feels like. I'm going in the NCAA transfer portal. No, I'm going in the NCAA transfer portal. And you have guys who do it one year and then do it the next year, i.e. Jarius Hamilton with Maryland, right? He goes from Boston College to Maryland to now potentially another school. Now, again, it's not a guarantee Maryland is losing all of these guys, but it does seem safe to say that most, if not all, of these guys who have said, well, I'm entering the transfer portal or, well, I'm entering the NBA draft while maintaining my collegiate eligibility will not be on the team next season. We'll see. I mean, I hope some of these guys come back, but I'm certainly not counting on it as a Maryland basketball fan. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. You have thoughts, you have comments, you have questions, you have complaints. Let me have them. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Thursday night, we have the start of this mega stretch for the Capitals. Three consecutive games against the New York Islanders, followed by two consecutive home games against the Pittsburgh Penguins, followed by two consecutive games at the New York Rangers. Biggest stretch of the season if the Caps are going to win yet another division title this season in the reconfigured NHL. The Caps are in the East Division. This stretch looms large. Caps are at the Islanders Thursday night and Saturday night, then home to the Islanders Tuesday night. Joining me on Thursday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast will be none other than the legendary, longtime television voice of the Capitals, Joe Beninati. Can't wait to catch up with Joe and to talk Caps as we are very much in the stretch run of the Capitals' regular season. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.